Hey everyone, today's episode is on the great saint John the Baptist, one of my favorite and one of my patron saints. So this episode will be the first in a two-part series where first I want to get into the mystical, esoteric sides of St. John the Baptist. And then next week, we're going to get into a little bit more of the scholarly side, a little bit more of the academic side. Who was St. John the Baptist? What did he believe? Did he really believe that he was the prophet Elijah? Did he believe that Jesus was the Messiah? A lot of things we're going to unpack next week. But this week, we're going to focus on those mystical elements, his tie-in with herbalism, his tie-in with healing, the Middle Age lore over his severed head, a lot of fun stuff. So we're going to open up with the story, the infamous story of Salome dancing, then we're going to get into a little sermon about ego and repentance, and then we're going to talk about the great saint John the Baptist, who he was and how we can incorporate his spirituality, his esotericism into your spiritual life. So thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoy. All show notes and bonus content for St. John the Baptist can be found on the Patreon. God bless you. Salome stood proud, finishing her dance that mesmerized the entire palace hall. Enchanted and impressed, Herod stated in front of the entire audience, Due to your wonderful performance, I hereby make a pledge. You can have anything you want in the land. You name it, and it's yours. Just tell me. Anything. Salome smiled at her mother Herodias in the corner. Anything. Turning to the audience to ensure they could hear. Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the crowd fell silent. And the blood drained from King Herod's face. But a fake smile was plastered onto his wine-covered mouth. Well, he replied. And in that split second, Herod needed to make a choice. Because Herod feared John the Baptist. He knew the power John held through his followers and the respect John had amongst even the political elite. But John spoke out against Herod's marriage. Herod married his wife's brother, Herodias, while his brother was still alive and this was against religious custom. And while Herod respected John's conviction, Herodias and Salome seethed. Because how dare this lowly, bug-eating, dirty prophet speak ill of royalty. And now, they want him dead. So King Herod has to make a choice. Take back his word in front of an entire audience or kill a respected holy man. And ultimately, Herod chose his word. Guards, he said, exasperated. Bring me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And in the river Jordan, John was baptizing in the setting sun, wearing camel's fur, pouring water from a scallop shell on seekers all lined up one by one. 
And then from out of nowhere, guards grabbed John, punching him in the mouth, throwing a brunt of an axe into his stomach. John fell into the water as pools of red blood stained the river. John's followers began to interject, but John waved them off. This is how it must be, he told them. And just like that, one of the most powerful holy men was on his knees before a chopping block. And with a swing of an axe, a voice crying out in the wilderness was muted. And his head was placed on a platter and brought into the palace hall. And while John's life ends here, his legend surely doesn't. Because it's said that even to this day, corrupt kings and rulers, shady politicians and businessmen are sometimes woken up in the middle of the night by a disembodied head floating in front of them with wild eyes, dirty, moss-covered hair, and a blood-stained beard. And from his chapped lips are the words, Repent. 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 My brothers and sisters, I am here to tell you that Salome is dancing again. However, this time she does not come in the form of the queen's daughter dancing, but instead she comes in the form of ego, a church and a religion of self, a vindictive dancing distraction that wants you so separated from God and separated from one another, much like how the head of John separated from his body. Salome dances today as the alluring dance of selfishness and ego, a subtle dance that runs concurrent and opposite of the dance of the Holy Spirit. This dance makes us think we are better than everyone else. It makes the self-righteous look upon the so-called dirty sinners. It makes the religious turn their nose at those they feel are beneath them, casting stones upon the outcast. And yet, The opposite is also true. The dance of Salome makes us look hatefully at the religious, calling them sheep, calling them fools, or it makes the spiritual practitioner scoff. My prayers and magic are more powerful than yours. I can be a spiritual guide because I am more adept than anyone else. Who needs God when I am God's favorite? You need me, not him, not God. You need me. But listen here, you who sits amongst the brood of vipers. Remove yourself from the pit before you become a snake too. Do you not know that God loves the saints and the sinners the same? Does that disturb you? That even the most vile figure imaginable is just as loved as you are? Do you not know that even if you call upon saints and spirits, the outcome is still in the hands of the Almighty? 
For if you paint God who you want God to be, you are only creating a religion of ego rather than bowing at the feet of our immeasurable creator. For who are we to determine the will of God? For we were not there when he laid the earth's foundations, when he marked off the dimensions stretching a measuring line across it, when he shut seas behind doors and laid the clouds as his garment. Girdle your loins, Job. Bow before God like a man. So repent. Repent. These are the words used by St. John the Baptist, but bastardized by the clergy and the self-righteous. Repent. Repent. This is not a calling that you are dirty or lesser than. Repent. Repent. Repent just means repentance, and repentance just means to change, to make room for the Lord within our hearts and souls. We do this through purging ourselves of the things that stop us from communing with Him. The things that bring us further from God, that's what repentance is. It's removing self-hate. It's removing fear. It's removing envy. It's removing ego. It's removing the religion of self. Repentance is not judgment or blame. It's a cleanse. It's a purification of heart. All done to allow more of God within us, so repent, repent. For if we are stained by the filth, muck, and mire of the world and our selfish desires, then we cannot truly make room for the risen Christ, but we can make room through ridding ourselves of blockages, removing ourselves of the things that turn us further away from the divine. So repent, repent, and make way for the Lord. As St. John said, I must decrease so he can increase. So may we decrease. May our ego and selfishness take a back seat so that we can make room for others in our hearts, so that we can help them bear crosses even if they are those who we despise. May we decrease so that our will takes a back seat to His will, and that we may see God in all things, that we may serve one another, and in doing so, serve God in all of creation. So God, Help us to decrease so you may increase. Help us to decrease so you may increase. Help us to decrease so you may increase. This is another episode of St. Anthony's Tongue, and I am your host, a voice calling out from the wilderness, W. Peace be with you and your spirit. Many people don't want Christianity because they want something feral, something wild, something that matches their desires rather than the overly pious holy faces that are enshrined in stained glass. I get it. I see that many people are drawn to certain aspects of Catholicism, but they want something more wild, more feral. People want a spirituality that's dirty, that's raw, that's real. They don't find this in Catholicism, so they turn to paganism or some form of nature worship. Because in Christianity, you're a dirty sinner if you're authentic. <laughs> but I disagree. The feral, wild qualities of Christian spirituality are certainly there. Granted, the goal of Christian spirituality is to become deified, to become like God, not animals. However, this spirituality never neglects or rejects the premise that humans can be and often are 
animalistic. We can be broken, brash, greedy, lustful, gluttonous. But also, we can use these passions for good. Christ was angry in the temple. Not only was Christ angry in the temple, it was pre-thought out. He took a whip and braided it. <laughs> King David's vices drew him closer to God through repentance. Even though he kept doing these things, he learned to be closer to God through repenting. And then John the Baptist, he caused such an uproar politically that it led to his death. Not only did John use passionate anger to make change, but he's also that feral, wild figure that so many people want spiritually. A man that lived in the woods, who lived off of bugs and honey, who wanted to cleanse himself and others so that they can fully commune with God, a simplistic yet powerful message. And though he was this wild prophet living in the woods, he still had the respect of people of all classes and religions. I also admire John because he shows that we can be our authentic selves, and yet he still pushes forth the concept of changing, of honoring the divine and glorifying God. Everything I just said, right, is we want spirituality to be a certain way. However, if we are to believe in a higher power, then what's stopping us from just creating our own religion of ego? And I find that John stops us from that because John preaches authenticity, but yet still says that we have to make changes and be active in our spirituality to find God, to repent. Repent does not mean that you're dirty or bad. It just means continually making changes to remove ourselves of the muck, mire, and stains so we can feel God more fully. And beyond spirituality, beyond authenticity and all of the things that I admire about him from a spiritual standpoint, he's just a mystery. Even in the canonical gospels, there's conflicting information and there's some kind of eyebrow-raising moments. But then there's also all of these esoteric practices attributed to him. This wild man calling out in the wilderness who still had the respect of kings and queens. Who was he? And what can we learn from him? And I also think the fact that he lived in exile is important to us. Because he is someone who can be there for us when we too are feeling exiled which happens quite often in this strange world. So let's start with a brief introduction on St. John the Baptist. Who was he? The prophecies of the Old Testament foretold that there will be a forerunner to Christ, someone who will make way for the Lord. Some say that this will be the prophet Elijah returning to earth because prophet Elijah never died. He was just taken away in a chariot of fire. Others say that this prophet of new will claim and cry out the crisis coming in the style of Elijah. Either way, Christians believe that this new prophet was the voice crying out in the wilderness himself, St. John the Baptist. And John was born of Elizabeth and Zechariah, and Zechariah was a great priest and comes from a long lineage of great Old Testament priests. And the birth was a miracle. Both parents were of advanced age, and they were visited by an angel who told them they'd be expecting. He's also said to be Christ's cousin, and if 
cousin is meant as in blood relative or not, they were close somehow, Mary and Elizabeth were. And it said that John the Baptist jumped in Elizabeth's womb in excitement when Elizabeth met Mary and saw Mary was pregnant. And this is often thought to be the first exclamation that Christ is here, or Christ is coming. It said that John was abandoned in the woods at a young age, and this could be for a few reasons. And in part two, we're gonna get into the early life of John the Baptist from a scholarly perspective. But this could be for a few reasons. Um, it could be because his elderly parents died and he was left to fend for himself. Some lore would also say he was raised by angels in the woods because King Herod was killing the firstborn. Historically speaking though, many scholars do believe he was in a group of ascetics called the Essenes and they lived in the woods. So that, that's likely why he lived in the woods from a young age. Either way, John is depicted as this wild man living in the wilderness, preaching in the wilderness. But yet, as I said, he was still respected as a holy man by clergy, the poor, the rich, to some extent, kings and queens and higher classes. He did have a very large following. If you remember throughout the Bible, Jesus said, who do they say I am? They say you're John the Baptist. Later, Paul's epistles, he comes across lots of St. John the Baptist followers. The apostles Andrew and John were former disciples of John the Baptist, and Jesus met Peter through Andrew and John. So he did have a very large ministry. We're going to get into that in the next episode a little bit more. And his ministry consisted of warning everyone that Christ was coming and baptizing them to make way. And today, baptism is seen as initiation into a church or a group. However, back then, it was a ritual cleansing, uh, much like we would cleanse a space, cleanse our bodies, same concept. And it was to be clean and free of quote unquote sin for when the Messiah comes. And remember, the earliest Christians, and this is still seen in Eastern Orthodoxy and Eastern Catholicism, sin is not this cosmic checklist. Sin is an illness, it's a blockage. That is traditional teaching. And it makes sense when you think of baptism being a cleansing, being a washing away. You're washing away that stain, washing away that blockage so you can more fully commune with the divine. And that's what John the Baptist was doing. He was helping people be clean and remove those blockages to fully commune with the coming God. However, it's fair to say that John did believe the Messiah would come back vengeful and angry. So he very much was this eschatological preacher rather than the love and light brand we're kind of used to today. And we're gonna get into that in future episodes. But John famously baptizes Jesus in which he tells Jesus that Jesus should be the one baptizing him. But Jesus replies, this is how it must be done. And then heaven opens, a dove appears, and a voice says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then later, John would be beheaded for speaking out against Herod Antipas' marriage, which results in the well-known story of his daughter asking for John's head on a platter. This is key for a few reasons. John is also called John the Forerunner. Um, you see him or hear him called that often in Eastern Orthodoxy. And it's true on many accounts. He preached and had a ministry before Christ, and he was also martyred before Christ. And there's also this view in a lot of Eastern churches that John was also the forerunner into hell. So Jesus died, went into hell to kick Satan's ass. Well, John was there first and he was preaching Jesus will come to hell too. 
And then Jesus came to hell, freed the souls, defeated Satan. There's a lot more we're going to get into. I'm trying to keep this episode more on the, the mystical side. But St. John was a very important figure. Christ himself said he was the greatest man to ever be born of a woman. And then fairly recently, 1947, you have the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls. A lot of fun stuff was uncovered, though the Dead Sea Scrolls says that two messiahs would be coming. There will be a priestly messiah and a divine messiah. Now, a lot of people get caught up with the word messiah. Messiah just means one who anoints. But this document showed the importance of this priestly messiah. And later, we would know that priestly messiah would be John the Baptist. And this gives a very interesting look at early Christians and how they viewed John. Because I feel like in modern times, he's a, a figure in the story, but early Christians did see John as equal importance to Jesus, and these Dead Sea Scroll findings show why. That also will explain why in a lot of Eastern Orthodox art, you have Jesus often depicted next to John the Baptist. When in the West, if Jesus is around anyone, it's usually Mary, it might be the Holy Family, or the Apostles. But Western or Eastern rather iconography, it's a lot of John the Baptist. And that's likely why, because early Christians did see him as this Messiah figure, this important, very spiritually powerful figure. But let's talk about some of the conspiracies surrounding St. John the Baptist. And a lot of them have to do with secret societies. Now, there are a lot of mysteries and inconsistencies just in the gospel, and we're going to get into that in next week's episode. To me, that's even more interesting than what I'm about to talk about now, because we actually have scholarly consensus. But these conspiracy theories, you likely have heard them, and it has to do with, or it kind of harkens back to John being that first messiah. It's interesting because these conspiracies and thoughts, they predate the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but we learn that for hundreds, maybe even a thousand years, John was seen as a very important figure, if not higher than Christ by some later secret societies. So many Gnostic Christians, and Gnosticism, by the way, is a modern term. It's it's a, an umbrella term now. So in this context, it's more so a hidden knowledge or awakening and energy within you, um, rather than the God of the Old Testament being a demiurge. But some Gnostic Christians, they believe that John was the true Messiah, or at least the truest spiritual master, who bestowed Jesus with the knowledge of how to become divine. And Jesus not being born divine, but becoming divine at the baptism, actually does have some biblical credence. Early biblical manuscripts, at least the early manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark, have Jesus getting baptized. And rather than God saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, it actually quotes Psalm 2, which says, you are my son today, I have become your father. So Jesus gets baptized, and God says, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Now that's pretty big, because today would suggest it wasn't until the baptism that Jesus found divinity. So the Immaculate Conception, the 
uh, you know, the flight into Egypt, the three wise men, all of that wouldn't really matter. Um, so that was not, obviously was not put into later transcriptions, and it was just in the Gospel of Mark that used that line, but it's very interesting. So these Gnostic Christians did believe that John was more a spiritual guru type who taught Jesus how to be divine, and through John's baptismal rite, allowed God into Jesus. So this belief that John held a secret knowledge that could allow people to unite with God in a secret sense, it led many Gnostic believers to hold John in higher regard than Jesus. And this group was called the Yoannites, and you would start seeing them later merge into the Knights Templar. An initiation into the highest circle of the Knights Templar was said to involve spitting on a crucifix, renouncing Jesus, and then kissing the head of John the Baptist, which the Templars allegedly had in their possession. And this ritual, amongst other secret ones, would activate a spiritual energy. Easterners or folks today might call it kundalini energy, the West might call it a Holy Spirit energy within the participant. So there was this ritual where prayers were said, you renounce Jesus and kiss and worship the head of John the Baptist and allegedly some kind of hidden secret energy would ignite inside of you. And this belief in John's spiritual authority over Christ, it's also found in other secret societies and it's likely not to the extent of the Templar ritual. Some secret societies may just see John as having more authority than we give him today. But the Templar, they did hold that ritual allegedly. And while some say this is a fairy tale kind of crafted by the early church to imprison corrupt Templar leaders after the Crusades, the 1930s, uh, Pope Pius XI, he mentioned these claims and how these claims have seeped into sinister sects that are damaging or could be dangerous to Catholics. I will say, though, so that was the 1930s when Pope Pius said that, and around the 1800s, though, late 1800s were when you started having these occult groups being more vocal about their beliefs. So the research is the claims that it came from a man who claimed to be a 200th Yoannite spiritual grandmaster. So it's difficult to separate fact from fiction. Was he just trying to get more members of his occult group, sell more books, or was it real? But the facts are the facts stand in a certain extent, right? The Templar Knights were imprisoned for a ritual involving denouncing Christ and honoring a severed head. And the Dead Sea Scrolls did call John a second Messiah and showcase that John had a big following and many early Christians, or I don't know, many Gnostic Christians, did believe that John had special powers. So there is credence to these claims. And then when you add that early Gospel of Mark manuscripts have verbiage that say, God said today, cure my son. I can see, I can see the, the thought process there. However, my thoughts on the conspiracy, I do believe that John was a spiritually powerful human and a true prophet who was given a gift to awaken people through prayer and baptism. I feel like the second Messiah mention might be overblown. Messiah just mean one, means one who anoints. And that word was used in biblical manuscripts for other priests in the Bible. And I can't really speak on secret society rituals because I'm not in these secret societies. 
I do think baptizing to allow God within us is in of itself a spiritual practice that Chan was performing, and you could even say that is esoteric. If you look at the timeline, like I said, in the 1800s, late 1800s, that's when the secrets of the Templar and these occult views started coming more into light. So you had these opposite of the church teachings about, you know, awakening spiritual energy. And during that time, the church was very rigid and it was anti-anything that seemed magical. So a push to awaken a hidden energy like kundalini yoga, it was popular and attractive. You had autobiography of a yogi coming out at that time and things like that. However, today, if you look at it with fresh eyes, you have that in Christianity. You have awakening of an energy within you in Christianity. And I feel what John was doing even in scripture could still be seen as awakening kundalini, awakening the Holy Spirit. Um, it's it's just a more divine figure than you would see or say is kundalini. It's, it's more of a, a God figure that you have a personal relationship with as the Holy Spirit. But these esoteric Gnostic views of being able to connect spiritually with God is not that Gnostic. It's called theosis and it's already a church teaching. But back then when these occult writers were becoming more popular at the, the end of the 1800s, the church was rigid and the church was going through reforms where certain things were deemed heretical or not of God. And the concept that you could feel God was up for debate. And it still is to a certain extent. However, today, this idea of communing with God, theosis, even hesychism, which is a, an Eastern Orthodox practice, it's more accepted by the church. So there are caveats, you know, awakening Kundalini and yoga would be different from connecting with the Holy Spirit because there's a personal aspect. But today, many theologians and scholars would say yes, Communing with God is not a secret Gnostic practice. It's called theosis, and it's been around since forever. Christ himself said, our goal is to become like gods, to become deified. So I do think some of these Gnostic conspiracy theories are to push a practice and the belief that there's methods of connecting with the Holy Spirit. And yeah, they are, and that's a fairly traditional thought. Nonetheless, I do feel like John the Baptist is more of a spiritual, holy, powerful saint that was a Messiah who was appointed by God to anoint, appointed to anoint. So I do think he deserves more love. And as we'll explore in our next episode, I also think that he was becoming a little too popular. So back then his story was suppressed. But I think today, in the state of Christianity, I feel like John should be revered much more because I do believe that his teachings and practices and praying to him for intercession can be extremely powerful. And the next is a very quick legend that I want to talk about that I think it's really cool. And the legend goes that the night after King Herod's party, John's disembodied head appeared as an apparition. It floated all around Herod's palace, yelling, repent, repent. It's not right, Herod, for you to marry your brother's wife. Repent, repent. And Herod saw this and he was aghast and horrified. And the head left the palace and it was seen flying all over the land, preaching for others to repent. In the medieval legend, those the head would still appear to corrupt tyrants and kings in the middle of the night. 
calling them to repent. So if you want someone in your life to repent, to apologize, to see the error of their ways, pray to good old St. John the Baptist. All right, so as far as John's global impact, if you recall, even during Paul's ministry, which was years after Christ and John's death, there were still devotees who saw John as this great prophet and they followed his teachings. So you quickly had this cult of St. John in early Christianity, and we talked about that already. Some became secret societies. But you also had some that never hopped on the Christian train and just saw John as a separate thing and stayed a devotee to John. So essentially Essenes. They stayed a sect of Essenes if John the Baptist wasn't a scene. And today you still have one of those St. John the Baptist religions around. They're called the Mandeans. And they're a small Iraqi-based group who believe John was the last great prophet, not Jesus, and they see John as their main messenger. So essentially they take the Dead Sea Scrolls to heart and they saw John as the priestly prophet, and but they're still awaiting the divine one. He's also revered in Islam, Baha'i, uh, synchronistic practices in Haiti, Brazil, and much more. And then as far as patronages go, and like I said, early Christians, John was seen on a similar par to Jesus in regards to assistance. Of course, he, they didn't see him as divine, they saw him as human, but they saw him as a great priest and an amazing prophet. Therefore, as far as a patron saint, he is able to assist and does assist anyone with anything. He's mainly used for healing, and we'll get into that in a second, it's because his tie with herbalism. But he's said to also be a very active saint, on the same par with Saint Anthony of Padua when it comes to speed and range. And he's beloved by traditional Christians, Catholics, but also occultists and those involved in magic. Like I said, uh, the Gnostics and more occult groups and occult writers did have a certain view of John. You can almost put him on the same par as, as Cyprian. Traditionally though, he's the patron of preachers, outdoorsmen, women, converts, herbalists, those dealing with storms or elements, those who suffer from seizures. Though it's not always about patronages with saints, right? Our status as people change, we evolve. So let's say when we're students, we might find solace in St. Thomas Aquinas because he's the patron of, of students. But then if we become parents, we might find solace in Joseph or St. Anne. But John the Baptist is one of those evergreen type saints, especially in instances where you want help in speaking the truth or just having courage or staying a path, a spiritual path where you're doing the right things, you're communing with God. He's a great person to have on your side. A few things that I, I feel aren't mentioned enough with John though. He was a political prisoner and he was a victim of a tyrant and therefore he can intercede from those oppressed by wicked governments. My favorite, though, is John is the patron of those who feel they are in exile. And the feeling of exile is quite common in life. If you think about it, often we go to our altar and we do a novena, we pray to a, to a saint because we feel exiled in some way. We might not think it's exile, but it is, right? We might be exiled from a job because we got fired. We might be exiled from a relationship because we're fighting with our partner or fighting with a relative. We might feel we're exiled from good health or we're just not fitting in. And St. John the Baptist is 
one you can go to when you're feeling exiled. On top of that though, if I had to summarize what I'd pray to St. John for, I think first would be cleansing. He is known for baptizing, which was to cleanse any stains we have, but we can also cleanse our homes, ourselves, objects from negativity, the demonic, whatever it may be. Also courage. St. John spoke out when it was not popular. He spoke out about religious laws. He spoke out against tyrants, against corruption. In next episode, we'll get more into why he was likely really murdered because it was more than just speaking out against Herod one time. He caused quite a bit of political turmoil in his life. So he had that courage and he had courage for speaking out. So courage and getting your point across. And yeah, I think having courageous words and courageous conversations and tough conversations, that's good. But he was also just a preacher. So I think any kind of convincing speech or any kind of interpersonal skills he can assist with. Also healing. Um, from a folk perspective, St. John is best known for healing type workings. And that has to do with his connection to herbs. He lived in the wilderness, so he ate probably nothing but herbs. The Bible says locusts and honey, um, but also probably herbs too. And he has that deep tie-in with herbs. And herbalism today is seen in many different lights. Sometimes it's seen as, as good natural remedies. Sometimes it's, it's seen as snake oil. Though back then, with early Christians and later folk customs, you had a lot of folk remedies, which include herbs. So that is kind of the tie-in with herbalism there and, and healing. He's the patron of herbs. Herbs are often used in healing. So herbs plus St. John the Baptist are a good way to work together. Protection is another thing you can pray to St. John for. Many martyrs, it's said that you can pray to for protection because they were martyred and they want to make sure it doesn't happen to you, that you don't come into harm so they can assist there. And also, like I said, uh, do you want someone to repent? This kind of goes on the line of retribution or justice when you want to pray that someone sees the error of their ways. Of course, usually when we pray, we should pray that we change, not for someone else to change. All of that good traditional stuff. But sometimes you want someone to see how they are hurting you or how they are hurting themselves or how they are hurting others. You want them to change. You want them to repent. So pray to St. John the Baptist that his disembodied head will whisper in their ear to repent. All right, so now let's get into the more folksy, magical, mystical elements of St. John. So we have to talk about St. John's Day. St. John's Day is considered one of the most esoteric, folk magic, magical, mystical days of the year. And if you've heard my St. Lucy episode, I get into some of this there, because much like St. Lucy, whose feast day was on the old winter solstice, John's falls on what used to be the summer solstice. Therefore, you have a lot of pagan rituals, midsummer rituals that now have almost a Catholic flair. So St. John's Day is June 24th. And 
Most of the magic, though, occurs on St. John's Eve, and a lot of the rituals and magic that happens there involves herbs. John is so deeply connected with herbs that there actually are some places that call him John the Herbalist. And one of the main herbs he's tied to, of course, is St. John's Wort, and that's said to have various spiritual properties from protection, purification, healing, and more. I use it anytime I'm doing a novena to a biblical figure. I like to use any kind of herbs that have some kind of biblical tie-in, whether it's named after a biblical figure, like St. John's Wort, or things like hyssop, mustard seed, because it just has that theme, that biblical element to it. And then in Italian tradition, it's believed that all herbs have more medicinal properties if they are gathered on St. John's Eve. You can also wear a mugwort crown on St. John's Eve to prevent headaches. You can hang St. John's wort above your bed on St. John's Eve to dream of your true love. There's so much around St. John's wort and St. John's Eve. To even mention in this episode, uh, the dew found on St. John's wort is said to be extra potent for healing. There's even lore about if a woman gathers St. John's wort naked on St. John's Eve, she's going to conceive that year. There's just a lot of Italian folklore, and most of it has to do with getting pregnant or getting married while gathering St. John's wort, which is all very Italian because they just want everyone to get married and have Catholic babies. So you also have St. John's Eve in Louisiana voodoo. And Marie Laveau popularized this ritual that happens in Bayou St. John in New Orleans, and it still happens to this day. And when it started, it was open to people of all faiths, all races, and it was essentially a ceremonial head-washing baptism ritual in the bayou on St. John's Eve. And Marie would do this to show that Louisiana voodoo is not evil or demonic. And there's a lot of lore there. Marie Laveau would appear from the water glowing and she would wash everyone's head and then she would disappear back into the water. And like I said, today it's still practiced. Participants wear white and head coverings and they're encouraged to leave an offering for Marie Laveau. Though it's rumored that this was actually a way to keep the white folks busy while the true voodoo practitioners did their real work in more secluded areas of the bayou. And Louisiana voodoo is is very interesting because there's there's a lot of mystique and questions there. Marie Laveau did consider herself Catholic, and the local church did too. And much of what she did publicly was just folk healing and remedies, and it wasn't considered wrong. And Louisiana voodoo, they also don't do syncretism. They pray to saints as saints, wherein a lot of voodoo practices in a spiritismo, you're praying to St. Peter, but you're really praying to Papa Legba. But Louisiana voodoo allegedly doesn't have syncretism. And I'm saying allegedly because everything I just said is controversial because some claim and some practitioners claim that Marie Laveau will put up a front. So she said that this was just healing practices. She said that we were really praying to the saints and that this is just a baptism ritual and all of this but this was just to make her practices more welcomed by the public to not ostracize practitioners so there is some mystery and mystique about louisiana voodoo and marie laveau but we won't get into that nonetheless saint john the baptist is still a strong and revered force in louisiana 
and St. John's Eve is still celebrated at Bayou St. John in New Orleans. All right, now let's talk about ways of connecting with St. John the Baptist. So the first I'd like to share is called the Seven Herbs of St. John. And as I mentioned, no other saint is closely tied to herbalism as St. John the Baptist. And the following herbs are called St. John's Herbs, and they're typically tossed into a bonfire on his feast day, on St. John's Day. And then the ashes are carried in a charm bag for protection. So it can be done on the feast day. There's nothing wrong with doing this any time of the year. And those seven herbs are St. John's wort, mugwort, mistletoe, mullein, orpine, wormwood, and hawkweed. So you take them, burn them in a pit or a bonfire, and then you collect the ashes and put them in a charm bag. Then you also have l'acqua de San Giovanni or St. John's water. And this is one of the more popular, well-known folk practices on St. John's Eve. You can call it folk Catholic if you want, you can call it folk magic if you want, but I assure you the people that used to do this just consider themselves good old Catholics. So this is an Italian ritual or folk ritual that's done on St. John's Eve. And remember, like I said, the dew on herbs on this day are supposed to be more magical and more potent. So this ritual aligns with that belief. So St. John's water can be used for healing, protection. There's even rituals about anointing yourself for dream divination and much more. Now, earliest customs of St. John's water, it seemed to be just leaving a bucket of water outside full of St. John's wort. And that was said to keep demons away as well as unwanted spirits away and of course the devil away. Because remember, if done on St. John's Eve, solstices are said to be the days where the spiritual world is more active. We talked about that in the St. Lucie episode. So similar concept here, that bucket of water full of St. John's wort that had the dew that's supposed to be more potent. Putting it in a bucket of water by your door is gonna help keep away those spirits because they're more active on this day. Now, the herbs for St. John's water. This is gonna vary from family to family and region of Italy. Some practitioners though, they will even say it's not the herb themselves, it's the dew that's on the herb. So you can just use whatever is local to you. Or you can be like the old school folks who would just keep that bundle of St. John's wort out ensure it gets dewy and then put that in the bucket of water and there you go but that isn't as pretty the usual ones you'll see are very social media friendly with flowers lavender and all sorts of chamomile so we'll talk about that so the a simple version you can use is lavender wormwood fennel mallow vervain rosemary rose mint sage chamomile, passionflower, elderberry. I will put sources in the description and more details on the Patreon. So what you do want to try and do is the night before St. John's Eve, the eve of St. John's Eve, leave them outside so they have that morning dew on them. And then you're going to keep them in a bucket of water overnight. And then that morning you can wash your face and hands with it and then bottle it for your practice however you deem fit. So that's a simple version. On the Patreon, I'm gonna share a, an alleged 100 plus year old recipe. And 
that has going to have what to put in the St. John's water and also what you can do with the leftovers because there's things like periwinkle and mandrake and how you can do herbalist stuff with that afterwards. So I'll share that on the Patreon. But the one I said previously with the lavender, wormwood, fennel, mallow, vervain is in the description. And that's a simple, easy one. But I also like this idea that it's not really the herb, but it's the dew. So you can just use whatever is local to you. I also like working with the herbs local to where we are. I think there's something powerful about that. And so those are probably the two most popular ones, and that is the seven herbs, as well as the St. John's water. Seven herbs, I feel like you can use those herbs in a charm bag year round. I just think that's beautiful because anointing a, a charm bag with, you know, a, a St. John the Baptist metal on it, maybe some exercise salt or, or dabbled with holy water with those ashes. You can do that anytime. St. John's water that is traditionally done during the solstice. I know this will be out much later, but that is still a fun thing you can have planned for next summer. And then the next thing I want to share is also very simple, but I really just love the medieval saint devotion findings that I often come across, like the legend of the disembodied St. John the Baptist head. I think that's so cool. And this also ties into that. So this is a headache remedy or any kind of head ailment remedy. And it's very simple. You take an icon or a painting of the severed head of John the Baptist, and you just stare at it with a white candle. You stare at this image, trying not to blink, blink when you need to, but stare at it. And while you do that, you ask for St. John the Baptist's assistance in curing your headache or head ailment, whatever it is. And I just think that's so medieval. It's so fun. It's very similar to the remedy for sleep paralysis, where you make the sign of the cross with your tongue. Um, this just has that medieval feel to it. So if you have a headache, try staring at a image of St. John the Baptist's severed head and let me know how it goes. And the last folksy working isn't really that folksy, but this is a novena that I've done fairly recently. And it's often called the exile novena or the honey and carob seed novena. Carob seeds are seeds that St. John was said to eat in the wilderness. They're often actually called St. John's bread. And this is a really simple and beautiful novena. You offer St. John a glass of water, carob seeds, and honey, and you just pray for his assistance. That's it. What I've done is a little more structured though. I take my, at the time I, I used uh, prayer cards and now I have an icon and a statue of St. John. But at the time I just did a prayer card uh, with a white candle. I just used a little chime candle. I blew it out when I was done. doesn't really matter if you want to use a novena when you can. But I just used a prayer card of St. John the Baptist, a glass of water, and a white candle, and a honey, and a little bowl, and a carob seed. And what I would do is I would sit down and pray, and I would offer him a new carob seed every day. And I just prayed the litany to St. John the Baptist. And if you look up litanies, most litanies, and their litanies usually are official, or at least there are official ones for each saint that the church recommends on feast days. 
And litanies, by the way, they're just the names of the saint. It's all the things that go by. So this would be St. John the Baptist, pray for us. Forerunner of Christ, pray for us. Martyr, pray for us. So I just prayed a litany to St. John. You can find them online. In most litanies, there's a section where you make your request, you make your petition. So that's when I told St. John my issue and what I needed assistance with. And I did that every day and I just gave him a new Kurab seed. And that was it. And it was really, it was really fun because usually novenas, they're nine days long. So they're a set amount of days, which I do think that's beneficial. Um, and you know, novenas, there's the big candle you have to leave burning all day or at least while you're there and the candle becomes a thing. But this was a little more free form and I liked that. Um, of course, I eventually I was gonna run out of carob seeds. Those are hard to find. I, I found like a pack of, of like 10, so I could probably only do it 10 days unless I wanted to take some away and give them back. But it was really simple. I just sat down, offered him a new carob seed every day and just prayed. And it worked. It was really beautiful prayer time and I enjoyed it. And I would definitely do that again. And it said you should do this whenever you're feeling like you're in exile. And like I said, if we're going to God, we're asking a saint to petition God on our behalf, often it's because we're exiled in some way. We might be feeling left out in some way. And if you're a member of the Patreon, you may remember I did a video with that novena. So if you're not a member of the Patreon, check out the Patreon and you can see a video of this exile novena that I share. So in conclusion, St. John the Baptist is an incredible saint. He stands for a lot of beautiful things, cleansing, protection, working on ourselves so we can allow more God into ourselves. He calls upon us to decrease, decrease our ego, decrease our attachments to negative things so that we can increase the divinity within ourselves and our bodies and mind. And also he just has this esoteric background and this mystique about him that I'm surprised I don't see many more people speak about him in that regard, in the spiritual regard, because he's a very powerful and beautiful, wonderful saint. Also very much tied in with herbalism as we've discussed, but even if you're someone who does not do much stuff with herbs, still a great saint to have around, can assist in so many ways and I encourage you to sit down with St. John the Baptist and see what he can bring to your spiritual life. So I think we can wrap up there for the mystical esoteric side of St. John the Baptist. Next week, we are going to get into some of the mysteries of St. John the Baptist that are right there in the canonical gospels. Who was he? There are inconsistencies, there's doublespeak, there are what seem to be very deliberate ways to mute St. John's impact. So we're gonna unpack all of those because there's some really interesting things there about how he is framed in the gospels and what John really believed. Did he really think he was the prophet Elijah? What did he think of Jesus? Did he know Jesus was Messiah? Did he know it right then? Did the baptism really happen or was that inserted later? All of those fun things next week, so be sure to tune in. Thank you for listening to another episode of St. Anthony's Tongue. As always, I am your host, W. And remember, repent, repent, O ye brood of vipers. Tune in next week. God bless you.